This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories of people fighting with their fortune. On one, we'll learn that if at first you don't succeed in faking your death, fake everyone else's death and see how it goes. On the other, we'll learn about trashing your employer's house for fun and profit. Even though for the characters, it's neither fun nor profitable. The creature this week is a goat, who's actually really fun to talk to. And that's what ruined his life. This is Myths and Legends, episode 173, Fortune. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two stories of fortune, in whatever way you take that term. One from Tunisian folklore, and the other from Italian folklore. They're both fairy tales, so history isn't really that important, but they're set in the times of sultans and kings with absolute power over life, death, and, as we'll see in the first story, the loves of their subjects. The sultan looked at his jester trying to entertain him, while the jester stood there crying. The jester, Abu Nawas, shook his head and continued his little dance. The sultan held up a hand. Okay, no, that actually made it worse. What's up? Abu Nawas wiped his nose with the palm of his hand. He was sorry. It was just his wife had died yesterday. The sultan nodded and pursed his lips. Wow, his jester's wife. That, that was a big one. The guy the sultan paid to cheer him up now needed the sultan to do that for him. Was he up for it? Could he be a friend to this man who had done so much for him, up to and including coming into work the day after his wife died? The sultan walked down and placed a hand on the jester's shoulder. This was difficult, but he would be there for the jester and give him exactly what he needed in this difficult time. The sultan would help. So he called in his sultana, his queen. When she entered the room, she grimaced. Yeesh. Wasn't he paid to make them happy? Why was he crying? Was this like a bit or something? The sultan took his wife into his arms. Honey, please. His wife just died, like yesterday. The sultana gasped and covered her mouth. Oh, yeah. I know, right? My boy's single again, yes, the sultan said, high-fiving his wife. Man, I wish I was in your shoes. Dead spouse, able to go out on the town, the sultana said. <laughs> the sultan nodded, don't we all? The jester stopped crying out of sheer shock. What? No, he loved his wife. He was crushed by this. His life would never be the same. Oh, you got that right, the sultan said, nodding at the Instagram feed that the sultana was showing him and only hearing what he wanted to hear. He said that Abu's life would never be the same because the first time he married, he didn't have the sultan setting him up. The time I married the love of my life, the jester added. Yeah, sure, whatever, the sultan replied and hit send on the message he was writing. All right, 
Tonight, the lucky jester had a date with the most beautiful of the Sultana's ladies-in-waiting. You're welcome. The Sultana turned to her husband. Uh, would he have time later to get way too invested in the budding romance of the jester and her lady-in-waiting? He beamed. I mean, they didn't have soap operas, and regular operas had kind of a lot of singing for his taste, so <laughs> absolutely. I mean, why else were they setting up this jester? I mean, who cares about that guy? Hey, hey guys, the jester said to the two people who couldn't care less what he had to say. I really don't want to go on this date tonight, guys. Please, I, I just lost her. Guys? The sultan looked over to the jester. Oh, sorry, what? He wants to kill their fun? Okay, well, that date was now in order. If he wanted to kill their fun, he could now be killed. The jester hung his head and sighed. He'd pick her up at eight. The lady-in-waiting was understanding of the place that the jester was in regarding his late wife, and they took things slow. I like to think that the sultan and the sultana treated it like a reality show, trying to set Abu and the lady-in-waiting up with other dates to inject drama, bringing in exes, and insinuating that people weren't there for the right reasons. But the more time that Abu and the lady were mandatorily obligated to spend together, the more they found that they grew to like, and even love one another. Then, for the series finale, they were married in a lavish wedding for the entire sultanate, showing that meticulously engineered love really can conquer all. And, like a reality show, a lot of Abu in the lady's life was comped. Until the ratings dropped off. And by ratings, I mean the interest of their two audience members, the Sultan and the Sultana. You see, the Sultan had given them some cash to get on their feet after the wedding. And even though they were going to invest the cash and live off the returns, living off the cash was just way more fun. And there was so much of it. Until there wasn't. Lifestyle inflation caught up with Abu, and soon he and his new wife were broke. His meager income as a court jester wouldn't have been nearly enough to cover the massive debts they had accrued, but he didn't even have that job anymore. The sultan and the sultana were certain the couple could live off the money that they had given them. They were in a tough spot, so Abu talked to his wife. She was friends with the queen. Go ask her for some money. The woman shook her head. First, no. Second, who has more money, the sultana or the sultan? And who was broing out and helping a court jester punch above his weight marriage-wise? Yeah, this one fell on Abu. He needed to go talk to the sultan. So that's what Abu did. And despite being the jester, who was supposed to be one of the more clever men in the sultanate, he decided that if it wasn't broken, he wasn't going to fix it. Right before he went into the sultan's quarters, he frowned. He thought of something sad. Nope. Wouldn't take. Acting was never his thing. All right. Plan B. The story says he took some hot peppers and jammed them into his eyes. The tears that came were genuine tears, and Abu rushed into the sultan's quarters, blinded by anguish. The sultan looked up. Oh, hey, Abu. He went back to his business. Abu continued to stand there sobbing. After the third large wail, the sultan sighed. All right, what's going on, Abu? Abu sobbed. It was his wife. She was dead. She was his soulmate, and he would never love again. Oh, wow. Bummer. Sorry, man, the sultan said, and looked back down at his work. This 
actually cause the pained jester to stop wailing. Uh, what? The sultan said, yeah. Bummer. We all die, though. She's not really dead, as long as we remember her. And by we, I mean you, and also somewhere else. I have a lot going on. Abu grinned, but the sultan knew what this meant, right? Huh? Abu was single again. Yeah. The sultan and the sultana could throw a bunch of money at him as he courted another young woman. The sultan looked up briefly. Oh, no thanks. We already did that, and one dead wife, that kind of makes sense. These are the Middle Ages. Two dead wives, though? Uh, What type of situation am I putting those young women into? Seriously, though. Best of luck, man. Sorry about the loss. Oh, more wailing. Cool. Abu came clean. Kind of. He said he was out of money. She had spent it all. He didn't even have enough for a burial shroud. Let alone the burial. The sultan rolled his eyes. A hundred gold pieces, Abu announced as he tossed the bag down onto the table and wiped his very red eyes. It wasn't nearly enough to get them out of this mess, but it was something. He had a plan, though. Now, his wife needed to go to the sultana, saying that Abu was dead and that she needed money for the burial. She was confused. Okay, well, wouldn't that cause some problems, you know, when the husband talked to the wife and both of them said that one member of the couple was dead? (laughs) Abu laughed. Well, she assumed that, one, the couple talked to one another, and two, that they spent what precious free time they had talking about Abu and his wife. No, grab your sackcloth. We're good. Hey, you know who I ran into today? The Sultana said immediately, as soon as she and the sultan were together. The sultan piped up. Oh, no, me first. You know what? Let's both say it at the same time. On three. When the sultan said Abu, and the sultana said the lady, both looked quizzically, before saying that he slash she was dead, and then saying, but I gave him slash her money for him or her. It would really work better if another person was on this podcast. Regardless, they knew something was up, despite each thinking the other was a liar or maybe just stupid for giving a dead person money, because each of their friends couldn't have lied to them. I mean, come on. Something like that would be ridiculously short-sighted. And, you know, deadly. As Abu looked out on the street, he spotted someone he recognized from his time in the palace. The sultan's doorman. The porter. (sighs) It happened. They had come to see what was up. After a lot of arguing the sultan had called his doorman to his chambers to put a rest to it. Would he please go to the house of Abu Nuwas and confirm that the wife was dead? So, that's who was on his way. Abu Nuwas thought of a solution. He went to the sultan saying his wife was dead. Now, someone had come to confirm that. When Abu finally answered the door for the doorman, he ushered the man in. How could he help the servant of the sultan on this terrible, terrible day? The porter pushed past him and found the bedroom where the body was underneath the sheet. Abu said that she had died of the plague. Did the porter want to inspect the body? It was pretty gross, and uh, she might not be contagious anymore. The porter shook his head. No, 
Now this was good enough. When the porter was finally gone, Abu tapped his wife on the shoulder and she gasped from underneath the sheet. She said that if she had to hold her breath any longer, she would actually go unconscious. Did he buy it? Abu nodded. Yep, he bought it. Abu was shoving her off the table, though. He told her to hurry. There was no telling when they would be back. His wife was confused. They're coming back? He nodded. Oh yeah, they're coming back. And they were coming back. Not the same guy. The sultana said that he couldn't be trusted. Even the way the king asked, go and confirm that Abu Nawas's wife was dead, was presented with a clear preference for the outcome. So when the porter returned, he was met by a head shake and the pursed lips of the sultana. Nope. She called her chamberlain to their quarters, asking him if he would go see who was actually dead at the house of Abu Nawas and his wife. She turned to her husband. That's how you avoid leading questions. I mean, does the sultan want to learn the truth about the world around him, or does he just want to be surrounded by sycophants, always telling him what he wanted to hear? As he took another sip of wine, the sultan said that he was a monarch from the Middle Ages. They both already knew the answer to that question. It was golden coach time. When the sultana's chamberlain returned, saying that he had spoken with the weeping wife and seen the body of Abu Nawas himself laid down on the bed with a sheet over him, the sultan wouldn't give in to the sultana's urging to just admit that he had been scammed out of some money and call it a night. The sultan, though, had just talked to Abu hours ago. He knew his old jester. That guy was hilarious. I mean, when he wasn't crying about dead spouses. So they called their golden coach which was a horse-drawn coach, that was gold. You know you're in touch with the common person when your means of traveling among them is a golden car. Anyway, they rolled up to Abu Nawas's mansion, the one that he bought when the good times would never end, but no one greeted them. The porter, followed by the chamberlain, both excited to see who would get to keep their head after all this, tried the door, and it swung open. They looked back at the sultan and the sultana, and both walked up to the house. Inside, it was cold and bare. There wasn't even a candle burning. They could see that no one had been there in a day, since the time that both the husband and the wife had said that the other had died. They searched the house until they came to the back room. On the bed, the form of the sultana's lady, still covered in a sheet. On the table was Abu Nawas. The sultan took the sheet back from the man who had been his jester. Abu stared at the ceiling, his mouth gape, and his chest motionless. The chamberlain gasped. Wow. The couple loved each other so much that, even though they both died, each came back from the grave to make sure that the other would be looked after in death. It was truly a love story for the ages. The sultan turned. That didn't sound true. He knew he talked to Abu this afternoon, and that guy wasn't a ghost. No, something was up here. He did not like riddles. They were way too hard and required thinking. He would give a thousand gold pieces to anyone who could tell him the truth of what was going on here. The sultan, the sultana, and both of their servants nearly jumped out of their skin when, from the table, Abu Nawas and his wife rose from the dead, saying that they would be more than happy to explain the situation to the sultan for one thousand gold pieces. When he had finished screaming, the sultan laughed 
Oh my gosh. Whoa. This, this was his jester's best work. Pretend to be some fool who wasted his money with no plan for the future, but really be crafting this meta-comedy that forces them to come to terms with the idea of truth and falsehood, rich and poor, class struggles. Wow. Bravo. Abu swallowed hard. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely what he had done, 100%. This was all just an elaborate meta bit. He was so glad the sultan was entertained. So, yeah, was the sultan on, like, Venmo for that 1,000 gold pieces? The sultan, so impressed by Abu's hard-hitting performance work, did give him those 1,000 gold pieces, and he had let him and his wife keep the 200 that they had scammed earlier. The story makes a point of telling us that they don't know what happened to the couple. They hope the couple got something like a medieval financial planner to help them make their money last. But you have to remember, the people telling the story, they could have just made up an ending where Abu and the lady learned their lesson. So I think this is more of a way to let us have something of a happy ending, while also telling us that Abu and his wife were definitely going to be faking their deaths again in six months for more cash. The next story is an Italian one of a young woman who actually has a choice about her fortune, starting with a visit from an intense stranger. But that will be right after this. Catherine, when would you rather enjoy your life? In youth or in old age? The woman gripping a wheel boomed from the entryway. Catherine nodded. All right, then. The daughter of the merchant went and nudged the door closed. Her father was rich enough to have a seat of gold, seat of silver, and seat of diamonds right there in the sitting room. You'd think he'd have some working locks. Catherine went back to sweeping when, again, the door blew open and slammed against the wall behind it. Catherine! When would you rather enjoy your life, in youth or old age? Catherine took a deep breath. Okay. Crazy woman yelling at her from the street was back. How fun and safe feeling. The woman stood there, not breaking eye contact, not blinking. Catherine pinched the bridge of her nose. Would it get the woman who somehow knew her name to leave? Yes? No? Still standing there with crazy eyes? All right, then. She thought about it. If she said she wanted to enjoy her youth she would suffer for it in old age, when she might have less of an ability to deal with it. If she chose youth to suffer, then no matter what bad thing happened, things would work out, and she could look forward to good fortune. All this was just a semi-annoying thought experiment to get this woman far enough from the door for Catherine to actually lock it this time, so it didn't actually matter. She shrugged. In old age. The woman, still staring, turned the wheel in her hand. Be it as you have wished she bellowed. Smoke erupted around the strange woman, and when it cleared, she was gone. As Catherine shut the door, she had to hand it to the woman. As far as strange people shouting at her in the street went, this one's showmanship was top-notch. She didn't suspect that the old woman might have been more than an overly aggressive stranger when half of her father's fleet of merchant ships ended up at the bottom of the Mediterranean, or the other half was captured by pirates. It was the chairs. A gold, silver, and diamond chair had always been a bit much, but I guess being a bit much was the point of a diamond chair. It was when her father sold it, but the diamond chair didn't even cover his debts. 
That was when she started to suspect that she inadvertently brought this on them both. She had to put that thought out of her head, though, as she cared for him. When they lost everything, and their first winter not only outside of their mansion, but outside of any home found them, she couldn't dwell on her conversation with the strange woman. That if she had chosen misfortune in her old age, maybe her father would have been spared misfortune in his. She had plenty of time to think on her mistakes after he died from illness. Now, without a home, a family, and, most importantly, a diamond chair, Catherine started walking. Whether she believed in fate or not, her fate had found her. No one would give her shelter in the place of her birth, so she would find a place where people would be kind to her. It was the next city over that a woman looked on Catherine, cocked her head, and smiled. What was such a beautiful girl doing begging? Catherine didn't make eye contact. She just looked at the ground and said she was looking for a place to earn her bread. Nothing more. The woman took Catherine by the hand. It was a different woman who arrived at the house a few days later. The mistress of the house trusted Catherine so much that she just left her there to sew and work while the woman ran out to run errands in the town. A few minutes after her mistress left, Catherine saw the door bar lift itself off the door. She knew she was in trouble. Hi, Catherine, the stranger, the woman who had shrieked at her from the street, said as she strode in the house. Once she was in, the door closed by itself behind her. I see things are going pretty well for you, Catherine. Hmm? Can't have that, the woman said and set down her wheel. The first victims were the fine plates. Then the dresses. The stranger tossed books into the oven and threw food on the ground and stomped on it. Catherine might not have been lucky, but she was smart. She knew this person, this being, whatever she was, could disappear without a trace. Her mistress had left her behind a locked door, and she would return to the house absolutely trashed. Catherine had accepted this life now, where she had agreed to bad luck as a youth, but she also didn't want to go to prison. She noped on out of there, as the stranger was helpfully sprinkling water from all the bathrooms over the linens. It was seven years of this. The first couple of times Catherine was panicked and angry that the stranger would show up whenever she got a new job and the person trusted her enough to leave her alone in the house. But eventually Catherine would just wait it out and like clockwork, after only a few days, the stranger would show up all bug-eyed like it was the first time Catherine was trying to have nice things, screech that Catherine could not escape her and then go to work trashing the house. Catherine would sigh, pick up her packed bag, and make her way back out on the road. Her reputation never caught up with her, though, and she kept getting jobs. That being said, I don't know, maybe give the people a break? It's not like they had anything to do with Catherine choosing horrible luck, but they were the ones to pay for it. If Catherine stopped taking jobs in people's houses, they would have definitely been spared, but she just kept doing it. Then, she got her last job. The very nature of it meant that the stranger wouldn't stop by. Every morning, Catherine had to balance a board full of bread and also climb a mountain. A rich old woman in town explained that this was going to sound crazy, but her fate lived up on the mountain and she had to make daily donations to the woman to keep her happy. Loophole, though. The old woman was rich, so it turned out that she could just pay others to do whatever metaphysical penance was assigned to her. Her fate was apparently cool with this because, hey, 
Things seemed to be working out. Rich old woman. Catherine had to do this for years without ever seeing the woman, which didn't really bother her. That wasn't a big deal. What was surprising, though, was that she got to stay in one place for years. After the first month, she tried not to get her hopes up, and she started living a simple and austere life, not getting close to anyone, lest the stranger sense her happiness and come for her. But the stranger never did. She never knew why until she saw the woman on the mountain. The old lady's fate was tall and beautiful, just like Catherine's stranger. The old woman's fate met Catherine at the door, looked quizzically at her, then grinned. Oh, yeah, this was Catherine. Yeah, how did everyone know her name? The old woman's fate laughed. Well, they were the fates of humans, so they knew everyone's name, but Catherine was famous even among them. Up top, high five. Catherine high fived. Okay. The old woman's fate said that Catherine had really given her own fate, the stranger, a run for her money. New jobs every few days for seven years. You might think, hey, it's fun to go trash the houses of rich people for a living. And yeah, for the most part, you'd be right. But having to travel to a new city every few days to do it, this was work for them. You know, most people just sit in the woods and be miserable, but Catherine... Catherine had to go ruin hundreds of homes over the course of several years. The old woman's fate smirked. She said she got an easy one. Just sit up here and eat bread. And I love bread. I'd do an Oprah impression if that was remotely a good idea. Catherine waited for her to take a bite of bread, so she would stop talking before she asked, Hey, did the bread lady fate think that Catherine could talk to her fate? Maybe they could work something out. I mean, as hard as it was to go trash a house every few days, it was even harder to, you know, live in constant crushing poverty and not know where your next meal was going to come from. The bread lady scoffed. Complain much? I mean, she agreed to this, but yeah, okay, sure. She'd take Catherine tomorrow. It sounds kind of ominous to meet your fate, but when Catherine arrived, her fate, the tall, beautiful woman, was reclining with her eyes closed like she was nursing a hangover. Before Catherine could speak, her fate held up a finger and pointed to a table. There was a simple skein of silk. Preserve it carefully, it will be of use to you, Catherine's fate said and gestured toward the door. Like I said, Catherine might not have been lucky, but she was smart. She got out of the house and let her fate get back to her me time. When Catherine returned to the bread lady fate, she held up the silk. It wasn't worth three granny. Should she sell it? The bread lady fate took a deep breath. Uh, I mean, what did her fate say? Did she say sell it for nothing? Or, okay, let's review the minutes. Oh yeah, preserve it carefully. So, Catherine did. And her life continued on. She still was worried about getting too happy, that her fate might recover enough to trash this life she had built for herself, but it never happened. Instead, they had a different visitor. The young king was getting married, and his tailor had talked up the latest fashion. Medieval pro tip, before you pitch a new suit for the king, make sure you have the right thread in stock. The tailor, who enjoyed his head and wanted to keep it where it was, freaked out that the wedding was getting so close, but he still didn't have the correct thread. 
so he put out feelers among the upper class, seeing if anyone had a similar color thread. He needed as much as he could get, so he would pay for it with the thread's weight in gold. And yes, of course, Catherine had the thread, in the exact color he needed. She went because the thread had been given to her by her fate, not for the monetary reward, which, as the tailor looked at the skein, he counted out three coins and put them on the scale. That should be more than enough. Catherine placed the silk thread on the scale, and it hit the table hard, flinging the coins off the other side. The tailor inspected it. Okay, no, there wasn't a weight tucked in the middle of the skein. Weird. He counted out more coins. The thing wouldn't budge. He dropped the entire bag of gold on it. He dropped all of his bags of gold on the scale. The silk thread still outweighed it. Huh. Eventually, after the tailor called in all of his friends to try to balance the scales, the king caught wind of it. Half the village was in his shop, waiting to see what would balance the scales, and they bowed low as the king entered. The king chuckled at this trick, and, his arm around his fiancée's waist, ordered that, eh, let's say a hundred pounds of gold be brought in. They'd start small. The numbers didn't stay small, though. Soon, all the cash the king's late father had left him was piled on the scale, but it didn't budge. So, he felt the last thing of value, his crown, and he put that on the scale. With that, the side with the silk skein not only moved, it balanced. The king wasn't speechless for long. All right, how'd you do that? Where'd you get that silk? He demanded. Catherine only threw up her hands. She got this silk from her mistress. It wasn't anything special. The king, all right, whatever, that was a lie. If she didn't tell him the truth, he would have her head cut off. Catherine stepped back. Wow, just going straight to beheading then. Okay, well, it began with the woman shrieking at her from the street. Included the death of her father, the trashing of so many houses, mountain bread lady, and finally, the gift from her fate. The king was about to respond when a woman's voice boomed from the crowd. Catherine, you have suffered much, but now you will see happy days. It was not until the golden crown was placed on the scale that the balance was even. And that is now a sign that she would be a queen. Catherine smiled. She recognized that voice. She nodded. The king, having a drastic change of heart, stepped forward. If she's to be the queen, I will make her one. For Catherine, and none other, shall be my wife. Now yeah, there are some problems with this surprise proposal to a woman he didn't know and also threatened to behead like 10 minutes ago. Not the least of which being that Catherine hadn't been asked at all, and the king was standing right next to his fiancée. The story says that he dealt with the latter problem by just informing her, quote, he no longer wished her. I like to think that she had some words for him, but since he was the type of guy whose first and only go-to solution for any problem was to behead someone, she probably just breathed the sigh of relief and got out of there. As far as unhinged medieval monarchs go, the young king, I guess, wasn't even that bad. And Catherine? Well, Catherine was very tired of living on the street. So when she saw a shot to be rich and powerful again, after nearly a decade in the wilderness, she took it. The tailor finished up the suit, and Catherine and the king wed. The story says that after Catherine in her youth had suffered so much, she enjoyed nothing but happiness in her old age. And for those of you doing the math at home... 
say she was, I don't know, 15 when her fate first visited her, which is a, actually a pretty conservative estimate. She spent seven years getting rich people's houses trashed and another three or so hiking bread up the mountain each day. So that puts her, quote, old age at 25. So I feel like good luck in old age is the right answer. Pretty much every version of the story and every time this particular trope is done, it plays out the same way. It has that built-in arc of a hero experiencing adversity and then turning it all around. Otherwise, it's just a tragedy where you're waiting for the other shoe to drop and when it does, well, the character just has bad luck and dies. Next week, it's more strife and more redemption except the strife includes swords and giants, and the redemption isn't quite assured when a knight realizes that he hasn't been a good knight, and God is going to do something about that. If you'd like to support the show, as always, there's a membership thing on the site at support.mythpodcast.com, but the Myths and Legends store is back up and running too. You can get t-shirts, sticker packs, there's new colors and designs. Check it out. You can find the store at mythpodcast.com store or by following the link in the show notes. The creature this time is the sea goat from Greek mythology. Now the sea goat, the Capricornus, both is and isn't exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like a goat that lives in the sea. And as it turns out, it is kind of a goat that lives in the sea. To move through said sea, it has a fishtail on its goat front half. Sometimes, they're amphibious goats, so they can move between land and water with the ease of just fundamentally changing half their body. The sea goats of Greek mythology both begin and end with Prychus. The sea goats were favored by the Titans, the pre-Olympian pantheon that got destroyed by the Olympian pantheon. Prychus was a friend of Zeus's dad, Cronus, who gave his little goat buddy immortality. I mean, it was the least he could do. The eons passed and Prychus was happy. He met a sea goat mate, had a bunch of little sea goatlings, and there were problems in the world, but the only time the sea goat ever got close to any of the drama of Greek mythology was when after baby Zeus, who was hiding out at the time, stopped suckling on one of the female goats of Prychus' group, the buff baby broke off her horn, unwittingly turning the Capricornus' horn into a cornucopia, an unending horn of plenty. Baby Zeus grew up, unfortunately, and war raged somewhere off in the world as the Titans fought the Olympians. The sea goat's plight, however, was a quieter one. One day, while out in the field chewing some grass, as a complete land goat, Prychus woke up. The only thing? Prychus hadn't been asleep. He looked with shock at his family grazing all around him, calling out to them, but no one responded. Then, he woke up again. They were farther inland. His hair was longer. More time had passed. He realized what was happening. The longer the sea goat spent on land, the less it was a sea goat, and more just a regular goat. That wouldn't be a problem, except that it was losing what made it special, its ability to learn, think, and speak. It was losing itself. Prychus herded what few goats he could back to the sea, including his mate. But the strange thing? Not everyone was thrilled with the sudden onset of existential angst that came with awareness. 
there were some that liked the mindless, instinct-driven life of being a land goat. Over the next few days, Prychus watched his children, one by one, choose the simple life of the goat over being a thinking being with him in the ocean. He respected his children and his fellow sea goats enough to let them make their own choice. But the hardest was his mate, because when she left, Prychus became the last of the sea goats. He refused to lose himself, so he waited in the sea to die. Except that, from his original friendship with Cronus, he couldn't die. The Titan had made him immortal. He found his friend in Tartarus, imprisoned after being overthrown by his own children. And Cronus said that there was very little he could do for the sea goat now. He didn't have the power to grant and revoke immortality anymore, but then he thought about it. He did have one power that might be useful. In an instant, Prychus was swept away from Tartarus and taken up into the sky to live forever as the constellation Capricornus. Which, which, yeah, is not only not what he asked for, but was the opposite of what he had asked for. So yes, if you look up in the sky and see the constellation Capricornus, think of the sea goat, who could just not catch a break. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 